Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A new podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to TV Show and Tell, the podcast for anybody who works in TV or interested in how it works. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant working out of London. And I'm Justin Scroggy. I'm a TV format creator and international consultant based in the UK. And in this episode, we've got a highly entertaining guest in the form of Simon Lithgow. Simon's an immensely experienced producer who's worked on a huge array of top shows in the UK, US and Australia, from Blind Date to American Idol to So You Think You Can Dance. And if listeners think that that surname sounds a little familiar, you'd be right. For that and more, do keep listening. But first, it's time for the catch-up. So, Justin, anything catch your eye this week? Well, uh, David, over the weekend, I was judging an American TV awards. And in the short form category was this year's RuPaul's Drag Race, Mm -hmm. the American version. Now, like most American TV, it's taped in advance because live is very difficult uh, in the US. Do you know why? Uh, Oh, is that because of the time zone thing? That's right. So it's very difficult to do a live finale like the way we would do with Strictly. So when they take the finale, they crowned four different winners with four different endings. Right. So that neither the queens themselves nor the studio audience knew who'd won. Ah. And then on the night of transition... This is how meta this gets. <laughs> they got the four finalists together on a sofa and filmed them live watching the final go out in order for them to find out which of them had won. Right. And then that reaction video was shown live on Facebook and TikTok. Wow. So basically, the four of them were reacting on stage and on the sofa at the same time. I was sitting there watching it. I was thinking, what am I watching? I don't quite understand why I'm watching it. They're watching the final, and I'm watching them watching the final. On a, on a rather smaller note, there was another rather meta moment. You know in uh, Have I Got News For You, which I was watching this week, the host asks a question, and then they riff off that question with their various answers. And quite often they've reached a point which is a, a mile away from the question. And then the host said something like, so this is the news that, mm-hmm. and you sit there at home thinking, sorry, what? We, we, we haven't been talking about that for about 10 minutes. So this was with Victoria Corrin Mitchell, who said, and this is the news that the world's largest potato has been discovered in New Zealand, <laughs> as you do. And Paul said, blimey, we've come a long way since then. <laughs> So again, he was actually acknowledging the fact that this was a sort of a, a very awkward link. And of course, for the studio audience, they, it probably has been about 20 minutes since they last had a question because they overshoot the show considerably. One year, the cards that the hosts get was leaked to the newspapers that they try to trump it up as sort of saying, well, it's all rigged and everybody knows in advance what everybody's going to say, which is not really true. Mm-hmm. But it, it definitely was like a, a bullet point conversation of various things that they could mention so that was like the initial story 
but then it then then there's like little jokes and brackets that they could sort of riff off so um there was definitely like a sort of a, a, a tree of possibilities of things that they could mention little jokes that they could make so that's probably why why they sort of end up at this the, the bottom of this very long tree of things and then they have to jump back to the top again and, and remind yeah, everybody what yeah. the first thing was well with a lot of the hosts you can tell when this mo- moment comes because they're suddenly wearing glasses so anyway two rather meta moments in in television this week and perhaps this is meta as well so i I don't know if you're aware of the Squid Game. I am aware of it, definitely. So the Squid Game is this uh, Korean drama which has taken Netflix by storm over over the autumn, in which a group of people who are very desperate for for money are persuaded to take part in a series of deadly children's games in order to win uh, prize money that will get themselves out of debt. There have been a number of uh, parodies and real-life attempts uh, to, to play the Squid Game, but in the last week we've had... Uh, Mr. Beast, who's a massive YouTube star, who set up his own Squid Game with 456 players and a prized money of $456,000. And it's so far racked up 152 million views. Yeah. Ironically, it cost $3.5 million to make. Uh, which is considerably more than an episode of the Squid Game. But he just thinks that that as a kind of a lost leader, because when people come to that channel, they then go and watch his other videos. And then he does sort of much cheaper videos as well that might still get like 13 million views. But it's just him looking at like pictures of the world's biggest kettles or <laughs> the world's most <laughs> extreme volcanoes or something. And like that's, that's a way of extending a brand on YouTube. You know, you, you just you have your main channel to do sort of the high quality stuff but there may be a second or even third or fourth channel where you have other things that you're doing reaction videos or the things side projects that you're doing with your friends or youtube shorts squid game annoys me because this actually dates back to liar game now liar game was a japanese manga about a girl that gets tricked to give a teacher a lot like a million yen or something like that that means she sort of falls into debt and that then there's an ongoing series of ways in which she keeps sort of falling in and out of debt but she gets helped by a really clever school friend and that manga inspired a a, a television version called liar game which is uh, it has some of the best and cleverest moments in it I've ever seen in a TV drama. It's mm-hmm. done sort of relatively on the cheap, but it's, it's it's very original because it is dealing effectively with mathematics and logic. Okay, well, that is the uh, catch-up for this week. And let's go over now to this week's special guest. Simon Lithgow is an award-winning showrunner director, producer, including three Emmy nominations, one Producers Guild of America nomination and an American People's Choice Award. Simon specializes in non-scripted reality competitions and shiny floor formats. Welcome, Simon. Hello, Justin. Hello, David. My goodness, you make me sound amazing. So let's start with definitions because we we love definitions of television terms on this show. So what's a showrunner and what does shiny floor mean? Uh, two very good questions, and both of those terms are American terms. So the easiest one to answer is shiny floor, and it literally is a shiny floor. So if you go into a television studio and it's got a shiny floor, which is typically most game shows like Wheel of Fortune or Blind Date or any of those game shows are going to have a shiny floor. Uh, a showrunner is, I always say, 
a captain only has one ship. And typically a television show only has one captain. And that captain would be the showrunner. And sometimes you're sailing on the most beautiful cruise. And other times you're on the Titanic. And those are the shows you try to avoid as the ship starts to sink. Everyone points the finger at you because you're the captain, a.k.a. the showrunner. So, Simon, TV's in your blood. What's your earliest memory of TV? Well, I'm very, very uh, blessed in that I was born into the industry. My mother was a dancer, choreographer in theatre and dance. She uh, was an actress as well. She was in that old classic film, To Sir With Love, with Sidney Poitier. And uh, my father was also a dancer where he met my mother, choreographer, director. My earliest memory was my father. I was probably three or four years old. I was taken onto the Muppet Show set. Wow. And this is the <laughs> old Muppet Show set with, with Jim Henson and Frank Oz, who's that now you know, film director. Uh, and I remember that as three years old, walking up to Miss Piggy, and Frank Oz wasn't there because Frank Oz used to do the voice of Miss Piggy. And Miss Piggy was just lying there dead. I was traumatized. <laughs> I was traumatized as a child seeing Miss Piggy not moving. And then Frank Oz walked up and went, mm, hey, and suddenly it was like, oh, she's alive. Oh, my God, thank goodness. And that's one of my earliest memories. And then as I grew up, I was always on set for the old classic shows like the Bobby Davro show and the Brian Connolly show and all those great comedies and light entertainment shows, as it's called in the UK. I grew up on those sets and in behind the stage in the theater with my mother. So I was very blessed in that, in that regard. I had very little choice of what I wanted to do career-wise because I knew at such a young age that I wanted to be a part of that world. So let's cut forward a few years later. Presumably you're wearing long trousers now and you're actually working I'm not on... sure. <laughs> and you're actually working on some of the classic British entertainment shows like Gladiators and Blind Date. I, I started in the theatre to begin with, quite honestly, behind the, with working with my mother behind the scenes. Uh, and then when I sort of turned 16, 17, my father asked me if I wanted to work on Gladiators. And it was a, a new series taken from American Gladiators. And uh, I went to California and I saw how they shot it in America. And my, my dad brought it back to the UK. And I helped him cast it, the first set of auditions. Wow. We traveled the country. And I helped him uh, sort of set up and how we auditioned the original cast for Gladiators and found the actual gladiators themselves. Um, and that was my sort of first taste in the television world. Uh, and immediately I connected with um, wanting to be a, a floor manager, a studio floor manager. They call that a stage manager in the US. And I was like, that's the job I want to do. And I was 16 years old at the time. And um, then my father got a call from the college and said, uh, your son, Simon Lithgow, who's studying film studies. Yeah, we're not quite sure who he is because he hasn't been to college one day. <laughs> and uh, that was uh, a bit of a wake-up call for my dad. So he sort of had to let me go and fired me um, from my first job <laughs> on Gladiators, uh, which I was very upset about. Walked out the door and got another job the same day. So then you're off to Australia. Um, you worked on Home and Away and Dream Team, and I think the Sydney Olympics as well. Is that right? That's correct. So gladiators, again, from the UK gladiators, they set up the Australian gladiators and they asked for some of the production team to come out to Australia. So I was just sort of 18, 19 at the time, and uh, I was already assistant floor manager working on a number of different shows. And But I thought this was a great opportunity to go and experience Australia. I was supposed to go there for a month and stay there for a year. And I worked, as you said, on Home and Away, and I sort of went, shifted from floor managing into, into assistant directing. Uh, first, second, third AD. And after a year in Australia, I had to leave because of my visa. I went back to the UK. I worked on a number of different shows like the Play Your Cards Rights and the Blind Dates and the Royal Variety Show. 
Um, and I was just, honestly, I didn't like the weather here. And I thought, I'm going to go back to Australia. And uh, I got a visa again and moved permanently back to Australia. So as I went back to Australia, I worked for the Seven Network, who just got commissioned the Sydney 2000 Olympics. So then I got to work on these huge mega shows, uh, the opening ceremony and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so then I went to work at Screen Time, where I worked for two gentlemen called Des Monaghan and Bob Campbell, who licensed this new format called Pop Stars from New Zealand. And they took it and they changed it to what became a global phenomenon. Sort of was the birth of reality television. And we pulled back the curtain behind auditions. No one had done that before. We had our first mean judge. His name was Chris Moss. He worked for Warner Music. And he was the first time that someone turned around and went, and went oh, my God, your voice sounds like, like we're strangling a cat. And Australia went, oh, my gosh, did he really just say that on television? And it went straight to number one. It made the Seven Network for the first time in its history, the number one network uh, across the board. And it was the birth of reality talent competitions. So as I understand it, you were somewhat instrumental in convincing the UK to take this format. Is that right? That's correct. So at the time I was working at Screen Time in, de in their development department and my father came to visit me and Sky was wanting this show. And my father at the time was the head of entertainment for London Weekend Television, which is now ITV. And I said to him, Dad, you've got to get this show. You don't understand what this show has done to Australia, where on the front page, every network and on every news channel on other networks, they're all talking about pop stars. And it was a very simple premise. It was, we're going to create our own version of the Spice Girls and we're going to show you how we do it. I mean, that was the premise. We're going to mm. take back the curtain and show or anyone can audition. And <clears throat> the audition episodes were by far the strongest and anyone turned up. And back then on the first series of pop stars, we probably had 50, 60 people show up. And then on the second series, when we just started the second series, we probably had about 800 people turn up to audition. And to be honest with you, we were a tiny production team on a tiny budget. And though I love Australia, their budgets are actually very, very small compared to the UK. And we really struggled to deal with these auditionees because there was like three of us. Mm. Uh, but we, showed, we, we, we immediately knew we tapped into something that had never been done before, which is now is quite common on television, seeing everyone audition and home stories. We invented the home stories. No one had done those before. We went back to people's houses and you saw where they lived and you saw who they were and you got to care about them before they auditioned. Uh, it was quite groundbreaking stuff back in the time. Now you're heading from Australia to the, to the US for American Idol. So I think we're getting a handle on your accent now um, as we travel around the world. Um, I'm very confused, Justin. I have no idea. What, people ask me, <laughs> where are you from? I'm like, I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny well as long as the tax authorities don't know where you live that's oh the main trust thing. me the american irs knows exactly where i am <laughs> so was american idol a, a great format or was it just great timing oh that's a really good question and a very interesting question because pop stars as i just explained worked in every country around the world except for the united states uh, and the reason being they really Americanized the format where you're great, you're amazing, you're American, you can do it. And the truth was half these people couldn't sing. So people didn't connect with the judges, they didn't connect with the show, and it didn't really work. That went away in America. And as I said, I sold pop stars to my father in the UK, and it was huge in the UK. Uh, the group Hearsay came out of it, and a few other people came out of it. And pop stars format evolved into pop idol and they took the best of pop stars and made it stronger for the mm. pop idol format and then they sold that to the united states which is a whole nother story because every network turned it down because 
they didn't believe it would work. And, I've got, and, and I'll come back to that story. I know it's show and tell, and it's all to do with my show and tell. So I'll come back to how American Idol was sold. But yeah, so what happened was pop stars evolved and morphed into pop idol, then American Idol. And when I got to America, again, everyone thought it was going to fail. And when we started auditioning people, we were literally walking around the streets begging people to come in audition. And thank goodness, a young lady called Kelly Clarkson walked in as a cocktail waitress in Texas wow. who became, who had the most, still to this day, has one of the most miraculous voices I've ever heard in my career. Uh, and then season two comes along. And like my experience from pop stars, I'm like, you've got to be prepared. We had at least 600 people turn up on our second series of pop stars. And we're probably going to get that for American Idol. Well, we went to New York City and we had 11,000 people lining up <laughs> five days before the audition started. Oh, my God. Oh, good sweet. And we were contacted by the police who said, you have to break up this line and remove these people. Otherwise, we're going to shut you down for good. And we literally had a thousand wristbands to hound out and 11,000 people lined up. And obviously we couldn't audition. Again, we had three producers and 11,000 people and we didn't know what to do. So we sent away 10,000 people. And what did they do? Just like Americans do do, they protested. They all put out these big signs and started outside our hotel room saying Fox sucks and false advertising. And we, we had a huge issue with all these Americans protesting. But what it did do was put us on the map on every news coverage in every paper across the country. <laughs> so, you know, they all say all bad publicity, all publicity is good publicity and actually helped us in the long run. So American Idol was this huge phenomenon again. And Simon Cowell was, I, you know, I often say to myself, if Simon Cowell was American, it probably wouldn't have worked because Americans can't stand it when they're criticized by another Americans. But a British person, we're always cast as the baddie in all the films. Why not have the baddie as a judge? Uh, and Simon Cowell came along and told people how it was. If they couldn't mm. sing, he told mm. them. And this was very unique to American television. So just taking you back to timing for a second, um, we can see why the show, now that we see it, was was that phenomenon. Um, why was the timing good for American Idol? Well, I have a theory about that, Justin, and, and it's a really good question because, to me, timing is everything. You could have the best idea in the world, best, most creative format you've ever come up with, and if your timing is wrong, it's not going to end up anywhere. It's going to fail miserably. And for American Idol, the timing was perfect. To start with, as I said, all the American networks have passed on the show. So they let us produce the show. Producers produce the show as opposed to agents or network execs or anyone else. They thought it was going to fail. So they left us alone to get on to make the show originally. And I think 9-11 played a huge part in why American Idol was successful. And the reason being, it was the first time the American homeland had been attacked. Suddenly, they weren't safe. The American dream itself was under attack. And suddenly, a, a show comes along called American Idol, where you can go from rags to riches. That is the whole story and premise of American Idol. Kelly Clarkson is a cocktail waitress, one minute. And six months later, she's on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine with a platinum album and a millionaire. It's the rag to riches story with American Idol. And who decides who wins that? America does. It's the American vote. It's the American dream. And we gave that back to America after 9-11, after the, the whole fear factor had sort of come in across America. And we gave them the dream back. So after the success of Idol came So You Think You Can Dance, which I think is at 16 seasons so far for Fox. Um, so for that, you were looking at 
a similar template to Idol in terms of a panel of judges and auditions and so on and so on. I can tell you my father and Simon Fuller went away to Mexico and they knocked back a bottle of scotch together, I believe, uh, which is where they came up with this unique format because they wanted to change it from American Idol. Because American Idol, when you look at it, is actually a very simple format. Uh, like most successes, quite honestly, most successes are simple formats. You make it too complicated, audiences can't keep up and they change channel. They went away and they came back with this format where the judges got a vote, the studio audience got a vote, and it was a point system, and then America voted. And you put it together after the pilot, and no one knew who had won. We just sat there scratching our heads in the studio going, I'm really confused right now. I don't know who's won. And I thought after that, uh, Mike Donnell at Fox Network at the time uh, was going to cancel the show. I didn't think it was going to get picked up at all. And so what they did was that then they looked at the idol format and they simplified it much more. And uh, and it went back to a very much more basic format. Uh, and it really was built off the success of American Idol, which is why So You Think You Can Dance really was successful. And it was timing because, again, dance is much more niche than singing. I mean, everyone sings in their shower, but not everyone dances in, in the shower. And you mm -hmm. should probably not try it, to be honest with you, because you might hurt yourself. <laughs> but um, so it was always going to be niche. and It was always going to be a very sort of loyal followers. And it always was. The ratings were never as big as American Idol, but it had a stable, constant audience every single year and it was a very talented show the dancers on so you think your dance went on to do amazing things on broadway and the west end and were always pop videos they were always doing something uh and it was quite an incredible show but probably one of my favorite shows i ever produced was so you think you can dance actually it really was just the dancers were there to dance they were passionate they weren't they, they weren't there for the stardom or the fame or the money it was just about the dance and i, and I really enjoyed making that show for many years Fantastic. So you, in fact, you stayed with dance for quite a while with uh, dance moms and, uh, did I say that right? Moms? M-O-M-S. <laughs> so yeah, Mom. I mean, American Idol did spin off so many other shows like that. I mean, it was like the voice you can compliment that wouldn't have been the voice without the Idol format. Uh, America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent. They all came from that first original pop idol, American Idol pop stars and span off from that. And I did another show called A Chance to Dance, which was very interesting, more artistic with ballet. And, and I did a couple of other shows in, in Nashville and got into country music with Can You Duet and CMT's Next Superstar. They all came from that original sort of format. And there's more from Simon later in the show. And now it's time for Number Wang, where we look at the geekier side of television. And this topic has been somewhat prompted by the recent battles in the Formula One Championship. In particular, just before the final race was run, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen were equal on points, which led me to think, what are all the ways in which you can split a tie? Back in 1969, uh, they had a real big problem in the Eurovision Song Contest. Do you remember what happened with um, that one? No, I probably watched it. That would have been about six at the time. Well, that was the year that Lulu won for Great Britain with Boom Bang A Bang. The problem they had with that year <laughs> was that four different countries all ended up on the same points. So right. there was a four-way tie. And would you believe it that nobody had even considered the possibility that there might be a tie? So mm -hmm. they had to announce that everybody was a winner. And then all four countries in turn had to come to the stage and perform their winning song again and sort of like get a turn of holding the one trophy that they had. So just to be clear on that, so what you're saying is that actually all four of them 
actually won. All four of them were declared winners because there was no they were declared there winners. was no rule to say what happens right. in the tie. So they just sort of went, you've all won. <laughs> so some of the things that uh, you could do to resolve a tie, uh, you could do a rerun or have extra time, of course, but then that might still be a tie, so that doesn't necessarily solve anything. You can do uh, like a sudden death. So in other words, you can say, well, we are going to continue things, but as soon as one person makes a mistake, um, then they're out and the other person wins. Yeah. Um, so that that's like the penalty shootout scenario. Um, but of course, the thing with that is that it kind of goes on for an indeterminate length of time. So when you're trying to plan the length of an episode of something, um, you don't know how long it goes on for. I mean, like, yes, I, I had a situation with that uh, in Canada, doing Canada's super spellers, where the sudden death was between kids spelling words, and basically at the point where you spelt a word wrong, you sat down. Mm. And the last person standing was therefore the, the winner. So 17 minutes later, they were still going. <laughs> um, and neither of them had got anything wrong. And uh, <laughs> it was a real problem. Eventually, one of them cracked. Well, you reminded me, actually, of, I think, a couple of years ago, there was this, the, the famous National Scripps Spelling Bee in America. They went down to like the, the inner depths of the dictionary and they still had something like eight kids left. And mm. they they just eventually said, well, we've run out of words to, to give you. you not, none of you are failing. So we're just going to have to say, you've all won. <laughs> mm. So the other things you can do, um, you can use it at what I would call a secondary condition, which can be a bit of a trite solution. But so, for example, using the Formula One rules, they use the number of races won so far. I see. Mm-hmm. And then things like football leagues, there are actually many layers of secondary factors. So it's done on first on like points, and then it might be done on goal difference. Then it might be done on how many goals you scored. Uh, eventually, go back down to random luck as the final mm-hmm. thing. Which you think, well, sh- does that really happen in football? Well, I found a case in the 1968 European Championship between Italy and the Soviet Union. It ended nil-nil after extra time. And because all of the th- other things were equal, um, they basically had to go into the referee's room. Uh, the referee span a coin. Uh, the Italian guy guessed correctly. He came back out onto the field and started punching the air. And then the crowd started to cheer because they realized that they'd won the toss. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can have things like count back. So if you have things like a high jumping competition, you can sort of say, well, you both reached the same height. But who had the better record, who had the fewest fails on the way to get to this point. However, you may remember in the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, there was Barsham of Qatar and Temberi of Italy, and they had both had a perfect record up to a certain height. Then they had three fails each. So they had exactly the same record. So the marshal then said, well, we can do a jump off. And then they said, well, what if we both refuse to take part in the in the jump off? Can we both have gold? So the official said, well, yes, you can. And so that uh, <laughs> led to one of the, the nicer moments of the, of the Olympics as they both celebrated having a gold by effectively agreeing to share it. I think that raises a point, though, about contract with the audience. I mean, certainly when it comes to long-running, long-arc reality competitions and talent competitions, there does come a point where there might be a technical reason why one person would win. 
But if the contract with the audience is that both of these people deserve to be there, then as a producer, you might decide to put both people through. There was one one series of MasterChef The Professionals where for the final of the final, the very, very last show, they decided that there was going to be joint winners. And that kind of felt a bit of a cop-out because you felt like, you've, you know, gosh, we've watched this show for 24 episodes. <laughs> Well, there you are. That's the contract with the audiences. You, you, you have to judge that. And uh, you know, perhaps in that instance, they they judged wrong because Master Chef is all about the best of the best of the best. It, it's not called the Master Chefs. No, it's not called the Master Chefs. And then uh, there are instances where um, the judges kind of do break the rules. So, for example, in the Twenty Nine Booker Prize, the judging panel agreed just to split the prize between Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo. Wasn't there some sort of weird thing in Strictly Come Dancing where that led to a problem? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that was in uh, 2008. It was in the semi-finals, and there were th- so there were three dancers left. And in the judges' vote, they're meant to give the first, second, and third couples one, two, or three points. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they tied on on two of them. They gave two of them three points, and one of them one point. Seems fair. So you've got three, three, one. Yeah, it seems fair. Um, the problem came with the public vote because the public vote by doing a premium phone vote, and the way the maths worked was that basically whatever the public gave them, the person who had one point, which was Tom Chambers, couldn't win. So essentially, anybody who voted for Tom, their votes didn't count. So even if the public felt he was the best dancer, he would get three points, but he had one point from the judges. So that's four. Yep. But but the second best would be given two points, and that means that that two points would have to go to one of the other two dancers that have already on three. So that would be five points. So that five-point team will always win. And the moral of the story is even if the, the public voted for Tom and his partner to be the best and gave them the maximum, it would be impossible for them to win because somebody else is on five points and they're on four. Correct. So the outcry was therefore that the premium vote essentially didn't count. And so, in fact, the BBC had to give them the money back. And this was, of course, the live vote during the news in the break in the show. So when they came back from the public vote, um, they announced that they were putting all three of them through to the final. So there we are. So those are some of the ways that you can break a tie. A bit of a, a gnarly subject in formats, but there are ways of solving them. And now let's go back to this week's special guest, international producer Simon Lithgow. Now, I wanted to ask you, Simon, about Disney fairy tale weddings, because I've, I've heard a little bit about this from Justin, and the whole production behind it sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, just tell us a bit about it, and just tell us about the, the sheer scale of it. I love Disney's fairy tale weddings. It is by far the most happiest, which well, should be, it's a Disney show, the happiest show and the most feel-good show I've ever produced in my career by a long, long, long way, because it literally is giving somebody their fairy tale. Disney wedding. I was asked by the network executive Kerry McCall um, to come up with an idea. Behind, it was the behind the scenes shoot of the people who at Disney who make these weddings. So it was a sort of a follow doc of the staff at Disney. 
And immediately I knew that I couldn't really show what goes behind the scenes of Disney because they like to protect their brand like you've never seen any company. And rightly so, it is Disney. So how about we actually give somebody their fairy tale wedding as per their title? Walt Disney World puts on about 3,000 weddings a year at Walt Disney World. And that was my cast. I was like, let me tap into, let me pick out of this cast and we will give them a free wedding. But let me find people deserving couples and actually swallow them like crazy. So if they thought they were going to be on at the Disneyland Hotel, for example, we would actually move their wedding without them knowing and give them Disneyland Resort, the park under the castle for their wedding. And if they thought they were going to get the golf cart to get them there, we gave them Cinderella's carriage with all the horses and the bells and the whistles. And if they were safe fans of the film Grease, then we would actually have Olivia Newton-John there singing live as our bride walks up the aisle. All of that without them knowing. It was the most beautiful, special show. And I have to give kudos to Anne Lewis Roberts from Roberts Media, who I produced it with, who was, we were sort of both joint showrunners, and she was um, incredible at giving me ideas and things like that. So the show really evolved on this network and then ended up on Disney+, and we had to transform the format again from a cable network to, to Disney+, Plus, where it all sits on their platform now. And then sadly, COVID hit. And mm. that was the end of that with the cruise ships because it was a global show. We shot it on the cruise ships. We shot it at the Disney parks. We shot it uh, on Adventures by Disney in Greece and Paris. And it was the most spectacular, most beautiful show I've ever produced. So I know that um, another potential casualty of COVID was uh, Love at First Song, which was the show that uh, you, you've been working on recently, uh, which is a Korean format. We, we mentioned it in, the, in our last episode of TV Show and Tell. Um, so tell us about the US version of that. What what was planned and, and whether it's actually going to happen? The backstory of that was um, I was uh, in Korea um, giving a keynote speech and I made contact with a CJ E&M and I really connected with the format and I saw it had huge potential because no one had really married that blind date experience meets American Idol. And I thought there's really potential with this format because music, I often say that people don't watch television, they listen to television. Mm. And they listen to it through music and how much music affects our emotions. Now, if you use that with a love connection, so two couples both love, I don't know, uh, the Beatles, then if they like the same song, they're going to have a connection together. So I thought to myself, there's a real strong format here. And the Koreans did a pretty good job of putting it together. And again, I wanted to tweak it for the United States and sort of marry it to, remember the the blind date format with Scylla Black? I'm like, Mm -hmm. we can do something like this with blind date meets American Idol. So I love the title as well, Love at First Song. We optioned the format and in true American style to help sell the show and stack the deck in our favor, as I like to say, I approached John Legend's people who you don't get a bigger star love vocalist than John Legend. So John Legend was uh, love, also loved the format and attached himself to it. And we packaged it and we took it to all the American networks and everybody loved it. Of course they did. We've now got John Legend, an established format that's been successful in Korea. And we pitched it around. And CBS were the ones that sort of won the bid with a lady called Sharon Wong at CBS. And we were going to pilot it. We started casting. And then in February, we were told, masks are going on. You're canceling the show. We can't have strangers kissing, singing together. That's not going to happen. So the pilot got canceled. And then Sharon Wong left CBS and moved over to NBC in the... uh, we call it sort of the roulette of network executives in America. They all sort of changed jobs and changed positions. She went to NBC and then the show died because again, we literally couldn't make it and still couldn't really make that show properly or do it justice 
with the current COVID compliance constrictions. Uh, so that show, unfortunately, went by the wayside. Okay, that's a shame. So, Simon, like you've had such a wide-ranging career. Uh, you've worked your way up from uh, you know, such a young age and done all sorts of kind of jobs. Um, what was your worst moment of your career and what was your best moment of your career, would you say? Well, the worst moment of my career, I worked on a <laughs> good, very good question, David. The worst moment of my career, and I say you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your uh, from your successes, was we did this show called The Osbournes Reloaded in the United States of America, which was <laughs> a, a take on uh, Saturday Night Takeaway from, from the UK. And the Osbournes, bringing the Osbournes together, by the way, was the biggest challenge of anyone's career, I think, trying to keep them in the same room together without killing each other half the time. And they were very what we call racy in America. They were very, uh, they cuss a lot, they swear a lot. And it was a live show on Fox. And within 25 minutes, the Fox network itself broke apart and pulled us off air. Oh, okay. Uh, and that was the only 25 minutes of a series of eight that made it to air. <laughs> and watching okay. that Fox network and, and, and the faces of, at the time I was the, I think I was the supervising producer, and watching, there was no real captain of a ship. We're talking about showrunners. There wasn't one on this show. There was about 12. And everyone started pointing the finger at each other and no one took any responsibility. And the show itself didn't really have a vision. And learning that then was like a ship can really only have one captain. It was a great lesson to learn on that show because it all just fell apart and everyone just pointed their fingers at each other and it went way over budget. And guess what? It was probably the most expensive 25 minutes of television you've ever <laughs> seen in your career. <laughs> so that that would have been it. And I think, honestly, the highlight of my career would be Disney's Fairytale Weddings and giving all these deserving couples their their wedding. And then what happened on the show was <laughs> um, on one of the episodes, I was walking back. It was actually the first episode. I was walking back over the bridge on, from, from the castle in Disneyland. And I happened to walk into the middle of the photo shoot of their wedding photo shoots. And I photobombed their wedding, <laughs> which became a theme for the entire series. And every single wedding, I had couples coming up to me going, please, we just photobomb our wedding as well, please. And it was just the most beautiful moment. Like, oh, I've, I've done something good in the world. I've given them their dream and spoil their photo their photos on their wedding which was really a lovely moment but originally it was a mistake but it was a beautiful mistake that's brilliant thank you thank you very much simon my pleasure and we have a great anecdote from simon shortly as he brings us a soft drink can as his show and tell item stay listening to find out what that's all about but before that, there's been a lot of news in the past months about deep fakes and fake news and what's true or not. So I thought as our big issue topic this week, we would look at the ways in which, for better or worse, television does lie to its audiences in the way it works, the way it looks and the way it sounds. So, Justin, what do you think? Do you think television plays fast and loose with the truth? Television itself is a fake medium. I mean, you know, we, we don't have the cameras to tell the story of absolutely everything that happens in real time. So, you know, even in the most uh, honest documentary, the decision about what you put in and what you leave out and what pictures and, and stories you put next to each other are all in the business of telling a story. And, I mean, what, what a documentary maker would say to you is, they are in the business of telling the greater truth. 
But there's a, a big difference, isn't there, between game show style thing where you have to play the game and, and pretty much what happens in the game is what you have to do. Whereas with a documentary, I've heard it ex- sometimes explained to me that you can almost just film a lot of stuff and then find the story in the editing process. That's true. And I think in the past, that actually was a legitimate method of making a documentary um, because you didn't really know what the story was until you'd collected all the material and you sat in a room for six months and you listened to everything and gradually the story would emerge and the key characters would emerge and only by hearing, you know, three months later what what person A says do you realise the significance of what person B said to you three months before. Mm. With game shows, I think it's slightly different because, as you say, the narrative of a game show is is largely has to remain as as you saw it and also i think audiences have a expectation that game shows are honest certainly if there's any suggestion that something isn't fair or isn't true um, there's far more of an outcry with a game show than there is with a reality show or a reality competition even but i do think that there are what you might call acceptable levels of fakery that even in a game show that's run fairly that do happen in a TV studio. So one of the ones that people are quite aware of is fake applause. So, Well, I had an example of that. And the very first format that I ever created was called Don't Quote Me for Channel 4. And it was a, uh, a panel game about quotes. It, was, it wasn't just quotes. It was things that people wish they hadn't said. We recorded it at the London studios and the audience was supplied by ITV and they were struggling to get an audience for this show that no one had ever heard of. So the audience we got for the first few episodes was people who had failed to get into blind date. (laughs) So they had been queuing for some time, had not got into blind date, and were diverted into our studio to do a rather upmarket panel game. And they were very, very cross. He's not Silla Black, they'll be saying. So they literally sat there with their arms folded and did not move a muscle. And ironically, I watched those shows go out, and with the laughter track, they were actually some of our best shows. Hmm. I went to see um, a National Lottery quiz show called Winning Lines being recorded, which had 49 contestants who pretty much arrived by the coach load. And in round one, 43 of them get knocked out. So um, when they're out and all of their friends and family also leave the studio, there's about 20 people left in the studio for the second half of the show. But a lot of it is live or nearly live. What um, they had to do for the second half of the show is that they had a man with his fingers over about four different buttons, and then he had to judge how funny Philip Schofield was. So if he had a really good pre-scripted joke, it would be like a full guffaw. And if it was just like a passing comment, it might go all the way down to titter. (laughs) Well, in the late 90s, there was a rash of physical game shows shot in stadiums. What was that game show with uh, Crank Up Your Granny? Families at War. The thing with any game show is uh, the, the, the more you scale it up, the longer it takes to set up and the more gaps you have between challenges. And in Families at War, I know that they had uh, massive games um, and a lot of delays, and it took hours and hours to film, and the audience began to leave. And so what they had to do was to take the remaining audience and donut them into groups so that when they went to the shot in the in the stands, um, it looked like there were 
sufficient people there. Mm. There was an incident on the BBC quiz Wipeout where uh, a very observant viewer had noticed that the very sort of bottom left of the screen, which had just a, a few faces applauding at the end of the episode, were the same people on every single episode. Because what they'd done is that they had digitally added in those people from a different show and and put them as the audience. Well, I did a live morning show. So it was a filler show uh, when Robert Kilroy Silt's show, Kilroy, was, was off air, his discussion show. We were on for six weeks every day at 9.20. And we really, really, really struggled to find a studio audience. So the first row was the people who'd actually turned up. The next row was the production team. The row behind that were people who had been paid 20 quid from the job centre. <laughs> and the back two rows were painted on the wall. <laughs> so uh, earlier in the earlier in the show, we were talking about how television is going meta. I think for quite a long time now, viewers have become far more aware about how television is made. I mean, I think all the way back to Chris Evans and Don't Forget Your Toothbrush and Chris talking to the camera crew and cameras showing the cameras in shot and things like that. And that was all quite new at the time to kind of pull back the curtain and reveal how it was made. You know, with Mrs. Brown's boys, you know, they reveal the fact that sitcoms are recorded on sets in front of a studio audience with the film bits dropped in. And I think that what we've discovered is that the audience are not particularly phased by by realising that television is a construct. But the, there's a lie on top of the lie. <laughs> because on Mrs. Brown's Boys, what Brendan O'Carroll would do in his scripts is he would just write Bob, which he, he said standard for bit of business. What he meant by that was it was like a, just a, an unscripted moment when nobody would know what would happen. What he would do is he would just go to the cameraman and just say, like, can you just push your camera and like accidentally break a window or something like that or crash into the set? So what everybody thought was like, oh, we've left in a, an outtake in the, in the show as, as a funny moment. Actually, there was a bit of planning to get that unscripted moment in the show. Okay, I've got a couple of things in terms of props. Um, yes. In terms of how props lie to you. So, for example, <laughs> on um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, to prove that they had a million pounds to give away, Chris Tarrant would tap a box just below his computer to say, here's the million pounds. Well, that wasn't a million pounds. It was basically mainly plain paper. It had some real notes stuck to the front of all the bundles. And then there was uh, also the thing about the envelopes and blind date. So when the the date uh, is arranged between the two people, one person got to pick an envelope to say, you're off to Tenerife or you're off to the Maldives or you're off to Blackpool. And uh, apparently they they all had the same holiday in them. Uh, it's because it was just a, so massive a complicated uh, thing to arrange for flights and, and the crew, which is like actually quite mm. a big crew, to go on and film this video of, of how their date went. Well, uh, this is a huge area, and it's probably one we're going to come back to. Have you seen a TV show where you've wondered whether something was fake or real or somehow manufactured? Write to us at our usual email address, which is contact at tvshowandtell.com, or give us a tweet on the handle at TV show podcast, and we shall do some digging and see if we can find an answer for you. Mm -hmm. 
So we're back with the top international showrunner, Simon Lithgow. And Simon, we ask everybody to show and tell us something that has influenced their career. It's got a neat, neat anecdote behind us. So what have you got to show us? So I have brought with me a can of Pepsi with me today. And the right. reason I brought a can of Pepsi is kind of, I love this story, even though I wasn't really in the room as it happened. So originally when they pitched Pop Idol to America, they got all the networks on the phone and Fox, my father and Simon Fuller were told, we'll pick the show up if you can get a sponsor on board. And then Fox organized his sponsor with Pepsi. And the pitch went like this. We've got this man called Simon Cowell, and he is going to throw these singers under the bus. You have no idea how they're going to get these American singers, and it's going to, we're going to tell them straight. If they sound terrible, they sound like a bag of screeching cats, we're going to tell them exactly that. And the man on the Pepsi went, let me get this straight. Uh, you're going to tell these bad singers how bad they are, that they're losers, and you want Pepsi to be affiliated with this man called Simon Cowell and these losers? What you need to do is call Coca-Cola. <laughs> and Pepsi hung up. And next thing you know, they re they got Coca-Cola on the phone. They repitched it to Coca-Cola and they left everything out about Simon Cowell. They didn't mention Simon Cowell. <laughs> they had nothing to do with Simon Cowell. And Coca-Cola accepted it. And next thing you know, American Idol was by far the biggest show in the world. Well, that's a fantastic story. Uh, Simon, thanks very much for bringing in your show and tell. My pleasure, David. Justin, as always, love it, man. We talked earlier about the intense rivalry of Hamilton versus Verstappen in Formula One, but that has nothing to the rivalry of Scroggy versus Bodicum in our ongoing battle of the game we call Fake or Format. This week, I've got two shows to tell Justin about. One is real, but the other I have completely made up. And it's Justin's turn to spot the fact from the fiction. So, two shows. Here is my first one. It's called If a Job's Worth Doing. This is from 1947. Michael Miles visits factories across Britain to ask workers questions about their own jobs. Cash prizes up to £16 were handed out by a monkey called The Boss. <laughs> That's the first one. The second one is called Buried by the Bernards. This is a current Netflix reality series where a bickering but big-hearted family from Memphis manage a budget-friendly funeral home while helping grieving families say farewell. So one of them is real and one of them is completely made up. Well, I know that there were a, a lot of kind of meet-the-workers type programs back in the early days of television, though that does feel very, very early. But the monkey definitely makes that suspect buried by the bernards buried by the bernards yes doesn't sound like a netflix series to me it sounds like a kind of american cable channel in that kind of you know let's let's find a couple of rednecks who run a store type of show so i am going to opt for the first one if a job's worth doing if a job's worth doing yeah Okay, well, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well, but I'm afraid it's the other one that's true. Oh, no, not again. Buried by the Bernards <laughs> is a current Netflix reality series. It was on in 2021. Now, your instincts were good, 
because a lot of people said that that show was interesting because it wasn't like a Netflix show. It felt mm. like something that w- it belonged to a, a different type of network, and and yeah. and that's why people found it interesting that they it was perhaps a bit less polished. Uh, but I had to go a long way down the list of reality shows to find a, a one that obscure that you probably hadn't heard of, <laughs> um, because there are a lot of them. And like even the forty seventh one down, I sort of went, oh, actually, I, I have actually heard of that one, which is kind of interesting that to, to show mm. how above their weight some of these shows do punch. Yes, well, I guess in the unscripted area netflix have done a lot of uh trying things out you know they've done their versions of just about every genre that you can think of um, most of which haven't worked because no one's quite sure what a netflix unscripted show is but because of that you did fool me so tell me about the monkey (laughs) (laughs) where did the monkey come from in your head I just thought it was the sort of kind of slightly weird thing that they might have done in 1947. I I don't know why I put that in. <laughs> just it just it just amused me. And um, yeah, there we go. Well, it was a. I I should have taken it as a warning. There we are. Um, well, we'll see if I can choose the right one next time when Justin tries to fool me. And that's all we can pack into this week's show. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at TV Show Podcast, or you can email us on contact at TV Show and Tell dot com. Please do get in touch. If you're enjoying the show, uh, also you can follow us on your podcast platform of choice and maybe even give us a review. Why don't you? Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>